Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the Executive Pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. Now we're going to get into this uh, Palm Sunday message and, and uh, taking a break from the Roman series. And I, I want to read you uh, basically two chapters, but I took, out, I took out excerpts so that it's going to go a little faster and uh, that'll just read a little bit smoother. But I want to read essentially Luke chapters 22, the second half, and through most of the first half of Luke chapter 23. And uh, I want to look at, at Jesus' suffering. And I'm calling the message today, Do Good to Those Who Hurt You. And uh, this is a message, and I want you to pay attention to Jesus as he suffers, as he goes to the cross, and the way he is treated, and the way he responds to that treatment. And uh, so let's just pay attention, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will just touch us even as I read this. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 47. While he, that's Jesus, was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him, okay? And we're just going to skip a, a little bit here, but they bring him before Pilate, and then Pilate sends him to Herod. And so we pick this up in chapter 23. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing. Think about how this must have felt. Think about how this would feel if this was you. He sent him back to Pilate, mocking, beating, accusing, making fun of him, stripping him, putting clothes on him. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. What a great guy, hey? I'll just, I'll just whip him. He's not guilty of anything, but we'll just give him a good whipping and, and then release him. But they all cried out together. That wasn't even enough for them. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder, a bad, bad man. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found, no, I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. That's Barabbas. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And then we skip ahead just a few verses. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And I want to, there's two reasons I want to I spend some time meditating on this this morning. And the first thing is, I want us to worship Jesus afresh again. When we look at, at this is the God whom we serve, this is the God who made everything that exists, this is the God that made you and me. 
and he is deserving of all honor and praise and glory. And he is majestic and wonderful and holy and pure. And yet when he was abused, when he was taunted, when he was taunted, when he was mocked, to see what comes out of his heart should move us to worship. It should move us to worship. It should move us to want to approach him more. It, it shouldn't leave us feeling dry. It shouldn't leave us feeling nonchalant or apathetic. It should move us to want to be closer to him because this same God who treated them this way, think of what comes out of his heart. This is what comes out of his heart when you approach him too. They abuse him, they mock him, and the only thing that comes out is forgiveness and love and charity and generosity as we're going to look at more in depth. I really hope that coming out of this today, I want us to worship Jesus, to know him better, and to love him more. And the second reason why I want us to take a good, long heart, I know we have heard this story so many times, but it's right at the core of everything we are and everything we do. The second reason I want us to take a long, hard look at how Jesus responded to the malicious, hateful, spiteful abuse is because not only are we called to love him, but we are called to do as he did. We're called to do as he did. First Peter says this, For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. So because he suffered, because this is at the core of our faith, because he went and did it, we are now called to do the same thing, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is our calling. This is what we are supposed to aspire to. There's a lot more to Christianity than just coming to church every week and living a good life. We are actually called to live as Jesus did. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at the various ways that Jesus was mistreated and how he responded. Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, we lift you up today in worship. We lift you up today in worship. Our lives fall far short of the example that you set for us but we want to worship you for who you are. What's in your heart is incredible. The love, the mercy, the graciousness, the charity, the generosity. Jesus, we love that about you. We love that this is who you are, that, you, that this is the one we are approaching when we come to you. This is the heart we are approaching, and we thank you for that. But Lord Jesus, out of our gratitude for who you are, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move us today. These are old truths that have been heard again and again, but I pray that you would move us afresh, that it would change our lives. How do we actually live? That we would also pick up our crosses, that we here at Southland would be known to be people who respond to our enemies this way. In Jesus' name, in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So let's break down the various ways that Jesus was mistreated. First of all, he was betrayed by a close friend. Have you ever been betrayed by somebody close to you? Someone in your family? Someone in a business partner, perhaps? Extended family, immediate family, a close friend? Someone that you thought you could trust? Someone that you, you thought you had, you know, that this person had your back, and then somehow, in some way, they betrayed a secret, they betrayed a trust, they betrayed a deal you had with them, they betrayed whatever it is, and they turned on you. It wasn't just someone who disliked you. It wasn't someone who, I mean, you've, you've always hated each other, and they turned on you. That's one thing. That'll, that, that'll make you mad. But it was someone you love. It was someone from within. It was someone close to you, and they turned on you, Okay. And that's what happened to Jesus. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas one of the twelve. Judas was one of the twelve. He was one of Jesus' inner circle. 
He'd been with Jesus three and a half years. He knew everything about it. They'd done, I mean, they'd done life together. Three and a half years, Jesus and his disciples lived together, ministered together, moved around together. Um, th- these were guys, they had eaten together. You know, Judas was there in the boat when the, when the boat was, was sinking in the big storm, and then Jesus calmed the storm, and he was there when Jesus was walking on water, and he was there when Peter tried to walk on water. They laughed together. They had cried together. They had been, conf- you know, they had been, uh, you know, confronted by the Pharisees together. They'd eaten together. No doubt they had shared many intimate moments together talking Judas and Jesus okay this is part of the inner circle you've got to we've got to get past I mean Judas is just such a, a character now for us because we just we know now that he betrayed Jesus and that you know he's, he's gone down in history for doing that but we have to realize that leading up to this he was right close with Jesus and now as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's this person, it's a close family member, you know what I mean? It's a close friend, it's someone you should be able to trust, and he's the one leading the charge. He's the one bringing them in. And I want you to notice how Jesus responds, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And first of all, what I want you to notice is that he doesn't deny that what Jesus is doing is wrong. So there's an unhealthy place sometimes people go with this, Jesus doesn't deny that what, Jesus, that what Judas is doing is wrong. He doesn't pretend, hey, Judas, it's okay, what you're doing is fine. He calls betrayal, betrayal. Jesus isn't just a doormat here. He's not just a person who's just weak and just wimpy and just, you know what, if you want to hurt me, you can hurt me and it's no problem. He calls a sin a sin. He calls betrayal, betrayal. He says to Judas, what you're doing is betraying me, okay? He says it out for everybody to know, okay? So this isn't an unhealthy person. Jesus is a strong person in this. But I want you to notice the total lack of bitterness or self-pity in his reply. The total lack of bitterness or self-pity. Isn't it true that it's often one of two ways. When someone close to us turns on us, when someone close to us betrays us, isn't it true that we usually tend to go one of, one of two ways? We either turn our bitterness and hurt outwards onto the person and lash out at them, and basically they become the whipping boy or the whipping girl for everything that's wrong, and they're evil, and we just, in bitterness, we lash out at them, we talk about them behind their back, and they become kind of this black sheep person, this person that used to be in my circle, Now I'm very bitter to them, and I, and I pour all that bitterness onto them. But there's a second way we also sometimes do it, and this is for more the passive-aggressive among us, and we turn our bitterness sometimes on ourselves in self-pity. And so someone close to us betrays us or hurts us. Instead of turning the bitterness on them, we just turn it on ourselves. And really what we're doing is we're seething inside. We're raging inside. But instead of turning it on them, we try to hurt them and we try to hurt God by turning the rage on ourselves. And it kind of in some sick way feels kind of good. But we say things like, I just, I, I should never have been born or I'm just a stupid leader. I, I, I'm not a good mom. And whatever, we take that hurt that someone we love has done to us and in our, in our passive-aggressive attempt to hurt them or hurt God, in our rage, we turn it on ourselves. We either do self-pity or we do bitterness. We either go external with our bitterness, we either go internal with our bitterness. And I want you to notice how Jesus does none of these. He's not weak. I love it. This is our Lord and Savior who we worship. He's not weak. He doesn't, he's not a doormat. He doesn't just say, oh, Judas, it's not bad what you're doing. It's fine. He calls a sin a sin, but he does it in strength and kindness. No bitterness, no self-pity. He still knows who he is. And not only does he, not only is he, is he not bitter with, with uh, Judas, we see this when his own friends, when the rest of the disciples come to his defense, Jesus actually stops 
the rest of the disciples from defending him. Verse 49, the next verse, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, and I love that they ask, but then they quickly do. You know, should we strike with the sword? Let's just do it. Easier to say sorry than to really get permission, right? And, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, now, first of all, let's just stop there for just a moment. Uh, again, just imagine this. Someone has attacked you. Someone close to you has turned on you. Isn't it the best feeling in the world when some of your other friends come to your defense? Isn't that like the best feeling? Like, I'm not, not, always, not usually in a healthy way, but isn't that the best feeling? So someone just ripped you to shreds on Facebook, and now some of your other friends come to the rescue, and they rip this other person to shreds, and you sit back and you go, oh, that feels so good. I mean, that's half of Facebook, isn't it? I don't know. I'm not on there, but... Um, or a third, I don't know. <laughs> um, but it doesn't have to just feel good. Like someone came to my defense, like someone came and now attacked that person who is attacking you, right? That feels good because I'm hurt, I'm upset, I'm bitter. I want someone who loves me to come to my defense and hurt them. But I want you to notice Jesus' heart. But Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed them. There is no bitterness. There is no self-pity here. It's this pure, unadulterated unbelievable, infinite kindness and goodness. When his friends come to his defense to attack the people who are attacking him, he says, absolutely not. No more of this. He is just so full of peace, so full of love, and so empty of anger and bitterness that he will not even allow his other friends to go on the attack on his behalf. This is absolutely, absolutely a whole nother level. By the way, it's actually beyond us, humanly speaking. It's actually beyond us to be able to do this. But here's the thing. Remember what we read in 1 Peter. But we're actually called to it, which means we have to walk with him and have him be empowered to us. It's not enough empower us to do this. It's not enough for us to just say, well, I could never do that. You're right, you never could. And yet he still commands us, go and do it. We need to walk with him, be filled with his spirit. And this is actually how we are called as Christians. Again, it's not enough. Many, many Christians have this idea you know, as long as I just believe some right things and go to church every week, I'm a decent person. You're not called to just be a decent person. Be decent as part of everything else. You're called, you and I are called to take up our crosses and do as he did. When he was betrayed, he would not even let his own friends attack those who were attacking him. No bitterness, no self-pity. Let's keep going. How else was Jesus mistreated? Well, he was also denied and deserted by those closest to him. Mark 14, verse 50, uh, sums it up this way and says, they all left him and fled. They all left him. They all left him. So first of all, betrayal. Second of all, desertion. Now, those two things, when you put those two things together, that is a, that's a hard blow. In fact, there are very few things that us human beings, as human beings, fear more than just being alone. To, have, to, for, to take some kind of attack in your life where people come against you and attack you and question you and accuse you or whatever it is or betray you, and then on the other hand, have everybody you love not stand up for you but actually run away so that you're, you, you're taking it all by yourself. There is, I don't know if there's anything harder than that for us as humans to go through. And this is actually part, where, again, Peter, we're called. He did not revile in return. He did not threaten. We're called to actually follow him because he suffered as we did. And so I wonder how many of us here today, maybe even right now or maybe recently, 
How many of us here have ever gone through something where we felt really alone, where we felt attacked, where we felt isolated, where people were against us, and we just felt alone? And what usually comes out of feeling alone like that? What comes out of feeling isolated? What comes out of feeling nobody's standing with me? I'll tell you what usually happens again. More self-pity, and I want to quit. Isn't that true? So I started something here. I thought it was the right thing or, or whatever it is. Now people are attacking me. Now people are against me. And now in my humanness, I just want to quit. I, I hate this. I feel alone. I can't do this. Nobody else is having to do this. It's only me. It's all, I'm all by myself. Nobody cares. Self-pity. I just want to quit. The thing I love about Jesus is he didn't quit. He didn't run away. He didn't, he didn't give up. He obeyed. He stayed the course. He didn't quit. He didn't run away. He didn't give up. He stayed the course. He didn't let self-pity creep in. And because of what Jesus went through, feeling alone and, and being mistreated are not excuses for us to pull out of the race that God has set before us. I want to just say that again. Because of what Jesus went through, feeling alone and being mistreated are not excuses for us as Christians to pull out of the race that God has set before us. They're not excuses. See, again, in our culture, we are raised in such a take-the-easy-way-out mentality, it's crazy, and it's crept into our Christianity. The moment something becomes hard, the moment someone's against me, the moment I'm experiencing any kind of pain or isolation or loneliness, that must be a sign that I just need to stop what I'm doing because what God made us Christians to do is have an easy life. What he really wants us to do is have a nice house and a nice life and be able to watch all of our favorite shows and just go through life and then get to heaven. That's what he wants. No. In fact, as Christians, not only... Not only are we called to be like Jesus, we should expect to be mistreated. We should expect things to be hard. And he asks us to share in his sufferings. I want you to see this, 1 Peter chapter 4. We should expect this kind of treatment. We should expect things to be hard. 4 verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't think it's so strange when people attack you, when they accuse you wrongly, when they lie about you, when they call you names you don't deserve, when they make up things about you and don't treat you fairly, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. It's part of God's test. He's actually sovereign. You thought it was just because they're evil. This shouldn't be happening to you. My life is ruined. Actually, God knew it was going to happen to you. He's allowing it to happen to you because he's testing you. He's in control of the whole thing. But rejoice. Now, now whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. I'm just blown away. I'm just blown away because none of us here has ever been crucified. I'm pretty safe in saying that one. None of us has been crucified. None of us is perfect. None of us is like Jesus was and yet abused as he was. And yet, the little bits of suffering that we go through 
If we, if we will accept those sufferings and not quit and not give in to self-pity, not give in to bitter, bitterness, this is the generosity of our Jesus. He considers you with that little bit of suffering you go through when you're mistreated, when you're isolated, when you're betrayed, when you're deserted. He considers that to be you sharing in his sufferings on the cross. That is, that is unbelievable generosity. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory of, because the spirit of, glory of God rests upon you. Being mistreated and attacked and isolated and deserted is actually opportunity in the spirit for us to rejoice. Yet our base reaction in this culture is really not much different than people outside the church. I mean, for many Christians, we basically just do what people outside the church would do. We fight back, we get defensive, we get self-pity. But this is the Jesus we serve. When he was deserted, he didn't quit. He didn't give up. Thank goodness he didn't. He stayed the course, he obeyed. Number three, how was Jesus mistreated? He was mocked. So first of all, he was betrayed, he was deserted. Number three, he was mocked and insulted and made fun of. If we go back to Luke 22, verse 63, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Okay, So again, they're outright making fun of him. They're physically beating him. Okay? I, I honestly, you put yourself in his shoes. You try to put yourself in that place. How would this feel? The humiliation, the terror, the anger, the rage. Like just outright, a big group of people in a room making fun of you, beating you, humiliating you. And then later he gets sent over to Herod and he gets to go through it again. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and we'll get to the accusal part. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent them back to Pilate. I want you to think about this because, again, while he's enduring this, you have to remember who this is. This is Jesus. With a snap of his fingers, he can turn them all to ashes. Okay? If you or I had that power and were in his shoes, I'm pretty sure nobody survives. Right? Isn't that true? I mean, it's one thing to endure this kind of thing and you can't get out of it. It's a whole nother level. This is the Jesus we worship. It, 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 it's not even just, okay, I can't do anything about it, so I have to go through it. That's, that's one way to endure things. He could have snapped his fingers and they are all being themselves tortured and beaten or burned up or whatever. And yet he endures it. So what do we do when we are mocked and insulted? Again, I made fun of Facebook before, but I mean, social media, whether it be gossip, we hold all kinds of little, you know, little grudges. Isn't that true? You know, business owners hold grudges against other business owners. You know, uh, you know this girl he, he has a grudge against this girl. This guy has a grudge against that guy. We have all kinds of grudges. This church has a grudge against that church. And grudges, 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 grudges. And a little insult, everything gets magnified. We feel justified. Isn't that how we feel? When someone insults us and we get mad and we gossip back and we talk about them all, so we just feel so justified. 
I feel justified in not liking that other person. I feel justified in being upset at that person because they have said things about me. They have done things to me. If anybody was ever justified in being upset at their treatment, it was Jesus here. The pure and spotless Lamb of God had never done anything. We've all, even when we're accused of doing things wrongly, we actually have done so many things wrong that we deserve, in a sense, sometimes, just to be mistreated. But Jesus actually deserved nothing bad. And I want you to see how he responds to humiliation and beating and mockery. He doesn't respond by going and complaining to all his friends about how bad these people are. He doesn't go on a tirade on Facebook. Verse 34 of chapter 23, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want you to notice something here. First of all, nobody even asked him for forgiveness. He's right in the heat of it. They are right in the middle of abusing him horribly. And again, he's not doing this in an unhealthy way. He's not pretending that what they're doing is okay. He calls a sin a sin. He has, he has labeled what they're doing as wrong. And yet, even in the midst of it, he's not hiding what's happening here, but in the midst of it, nobody has asked for forgiveness. They don't feel sorry for what they're doing. And he says, Father, forgive them. And then I want you to notice the utter charity of his spirit towards these people. When he, when he talks about their motives, Father, forgive them. Why? Does he say, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive these rebellious, wicked, evil, angry, terrible people. Is that what he says? No. Does he say, Father, forgive these horrific people on their way to hell? I can't stand them, but forgive them anyway. No. Father, forgive them. And, and now look at the generosity of our Lord's spirit towards their motives. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'm just blown away this week, not just by the fact that he forgave them, but I'm blown away by that. I'm blown away by the fact that he would view these people who are right in the midst of doing something so horrid and so wicked that he would view them with a generosity of spirit and say, I want, I'm forgiving them because they don't actually know what they're doing. I want to think about ourselves for a moment. When someone hurts us, how charitably do we view them? I'll tell you, if you're anything like me, not charitably. When someone hurts us, how do we usually interpret it? The reason they're hurting us is because they're wicked to the core. Isn't that true? Why is that person at work making things up about me? Because they're wicked to the core. They're a hypocrite. They are evil. They are bad, bad people. That's why they're doing bad things to me. Well, let's just take a time out for a moment and let's think about what these people are doing to Jesus. They're doing something worse to Jesus than anybody's done to you. And he is the pure and spotless Lamb of God. He hasn't done a single thing to deserve it. And he still views them with a charity of spirit. Charity of spirit. He says, forgive them. They really don't know what they're doing. Now, I know some of you are sitting there and you're objecting. Something inside of you is objecting. Yeah, but Chris, you don't know my situation. 
You don't know what my business partner or co-worker or family member or whatever is doing to me. There's no excuse. Well, first of all, I want to say a couple of things. I'm not saying there's an excuse. I'm not saying what they're doing to you is excusable. What they did to Jesus wasn't excusable. It was wicked. It was awful. The point is not, is it excusable? When we look at the story of the crucifixion, again, this is deceitful, wicked, disgusting, and awful, okay? We're not talking about pretending that what they're doing to you is okay. What we're talking about is to be able to see what they're doing to you is wrong and still in that place to forgive them and to see their motives. The fact that most people, when you're being hurt by someone, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that it's excusable. I'm not saying that what they're doing is okay. What, what these people did to Jesus is not okay. But the point is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, if we're going to be like Jesus, because this is how he is and this is how he calls us to live, to be able to see that what they're doing to us is not okay, and at the same time to be able to see the motives that, you know what, really, the reason this person is hurting me is because they're actually hurting it doesn't make it okay what they're doing. Don't hear me saying it's okay. It's not okay. But to be able to see that this person is hurting me out of something. They're not just doing it because they're wicked and evil to the core. They're doing this because they're really hurting or they're really under stress or because there's other factors going on there. I don't see, but, you know, they're ripping me off in a business deal. Well, you don't see in the background, this person just really has deep fears about their finances or deep uh, pressures at home. Doesn't excuse what they're doing. But when I see them, I forgive them out of a charity of spirit. I don't say they're ripping me off because they're an evil hypocrite. I see them as this is a person who they're doing something wrong and it's not excusable, but this is a person who has some huge pressures at home or who has some fears in their life about money or being taken care of or whatever. And we see that the people who are hurting us and taking advantage of us, they're doing so out of their own hurt. They're doing so out of the deceitfulness in their own lives and the pressures in their own lives. To have a charity of spirit towards those who hurt us, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I can't imagine having that kind of charity of spirit towards people who were doing this to me, what they were doing to Jesus. And of course, let me just tell you something, this is going to be hard. Actually, that's wrong. This is going to be impossible. And yet, we're called to it anyway. This is utterly impossible for us. But it's time for us as Christians to stop thinking that we're called to easy. We're not called to easy. We're not called to just attend church and be nice people to those who are nice to you. Look at what Jesus said. We're actually, if we only love those who love us, how are we different from anyone else? Matthew 5, 46 to 48. That's a Jesus quote. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? We could just sit there for a few minutes, couldn't we? Some of us think that we are piling up reward in heaven by being nice people. If we love only those who love us, Jesus says, not me, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors can do that much. Do we not have the Holy Spirit living inside of us? Are we not called to live at a different level? If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else. Even pagans can do that. Anybody out there, you don't need to believe in Jesus to love people who love you. You don't need to believe in Jesus to be kind to people who are kind to you. You don't need Jesus for that. But you are to be perfect even 
as your Father in heaven is perfect. We're going to have to live in a whole new way. This is impossible for us to do in our human power, but it means we're going to have to do something. It means we're going to have to press into the presence of Jesus and ask him to help us. It means step number one, I don't accept myself responding out of fear and bitterness and self-pity when people hurt me. Step number one is I recognize when I'm responding out of fear and bitterness and self-pity to a situation, and I recognize that's not right. I'm not supposed to act that way. Step number two is, rather than just going and ranting to all my friends and venting and doing all the stuff we do that comes easy to us, telling people how bad these people are who are hurting us, step two, instead of going and venting to everyone, we go to Jesus and we press in in prayer. And we actually press in in prayer and we say, Father, I am being hurt an injustice is being done, lies are being told about me, I'm being betrayed, I'm being attacked, and actually, Jesus, it's not okay for me to just be a normal human being here. I need to be like you. And you push in, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray. And you say, well, how do you know when to stop praying? I'll tell you how, to, how you know when to stop praying is when you have charity of spirit towards those people. Now, I'm not saying that'll happen in one prayer session. You might be there until you starve to death. You might just be there for, forever. What I'm talking about is you go again and again, day after day after day, week after week after week. It might take months some, in some cases. It might take a year. I don't know. But you continue to pursue God in prayer because you're not satisfied to just be a decent Christian. You want to be an actual Christ follower. See, the road to heaven is pockmarked with suffering and us turning the other cheek. The road to heaven is not just sitting in church. The road to heaven is a road of picking up my cross and following Jesus. So I push into prayer and I pray because I'm not satisfied to wallow in self-pity or lash out in bitterness. And I pursue Jesus and I pursue Jesus and I pursue Jesus and I know when I've finally gotten a hold of him is when I finally can see that person who's hurting me with the same charity of spirit that allowed him to say to these wicked people, forgive them because they really don't know what they're doing. When you can view the person like that, when you can see them in their hurt and say they're hurting me because they're hurting and you actually feel compassion for them, now something's flipped and you're living at a whole new level. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is actually what it means to be a Christian. To live this way, to pursue this. And as you seek his face, remember that he has charity to you. That he has charity to you. How many of us, this should be one of the most encouraging passages of Scripture anywhere. The fact that these people, because I know how many people, I wonder how many people here today, me, many times in my life, how many of us struggle constantly under a load of guilt and condemnation? We constantly feel like God's mad at me, like God's upset at me, like I haven't done enough to please him. And we just constantly, many of us carry this yoke of just, he's not, he's not happy with me. Or any little time you do one little tiny thing wrong, you just think, well, God's going to be mad at me for a long, long time now. Would you just go back and read the story of the crucifixion? They beat him and they mocked him and they scorned him and they accused him. And in the midst of that, out of his heart, pours out charity towards them. Forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. Now think about when you Go to, the, go to the Father. When you go to Jesus, it's that same charity of spirit that spills out towards you. He sees the best in you. He sees you messing up, but he also sees you trying so hard. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. 
this is how he receives you and me. And when you realize he has that charity spirit, the same charity spirit he showed to these wicked, rebellious reprobates is the same charity spirit he, he has for each of us here today. Now as I approach him, thank you, Jesus. I am really messed up. Thank you that you love me and that you view me this way. And out of that, I'm so grateful. How dare I not put that same charity of spirit onto those who hurt me? If you will receive me this way, I have to receive others this way. So think about that with regards to yourself. One more thing here. He was betrayed. He was deserted. He was mocked and insulted. And lastly, he was also falsely accused and wrongly punished. He was falsely accused. I don't know. There are a few things that rub the worse than being falsely accused. Isn't that true? Someone just makes up, someone in your family or someone you work with, and they make up things about you, and they tell other people things about you that are outright lies. They're untrue. Is that not a horrific feeling? That's a terrible feeling. Then if you even on top of that get in trouble for a lie, that, I mean, that, that's, that's bad. That feels horrible. And all of it again happened to Jesus. Luke 23, the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the king. So here's what's going on here. The Jews want the Romans to kill Jesus. In order to get the Romans to kill Jesus, they need to, they need to get the Romans mad at Jesus. And essentially, how you get the Romans mad with you is, is, is you... you, you you, you know, stir up a, an insurrection or something, like rebellion against the Roman Empire, or even more than that, if you hit their, their, their money bags. The Romans were all about, as long as your city, your country was sending money, the tax money to Rome, basically the Romans would let almost anything go. You could basically do whatever you want as long as you paid your taxes. And so the Jewish leaders want to get Jesus killed by the Romans. And so what they got to do is they got to set him up. And so they say, he's misleading our nation. And the implication there is rebellion. He is, he's leading the Jewish people to rebel against. He's disturbing the peace. And then second of all, and then they hit with the big one, is he's forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar. That's how you get a Roman official ticked off. Okay? Now the thing is, so this is what they say about Jesus. And he's standing right there. Okay? The thing is, it's absolutely, utterly, 100% false. He explicitly taught, many of these same leaders were there. In the temple, he explicitly taught the exact opposite, that you should pay your taxes to the Romans. I'll, I'll show this to you. It's a famous story, Mark chapter 12. And a bunch of the Pharisees and leaders, they sent to him, Jesus, this is verse 13 in Mark chapter 12, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, no doubt, some of these people are some of the same ones that are in this room now accusing him at the crucifixion. Okay? To trap him in his talk. And he did this all in public. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. By the way, that's a wonderful place to be when you can get there. As long as it's in a healthy, loving way. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So the Jewish leaders are now trying to get, they think they have Jesus caught. Because 
they know that the Jews believe that they're God's nation and they don't like paying taxes to the Romans and they want a messianic figure to come along and say, you don't got to pay them anymore, let's kill the Romans. So they know if Jesus comes and says, pay your taxes, they're going to get them that way. And they know if he says, don't pay your taxes, they're going to run straight to Pilate and get him in trouble. So they think, ha, we got him, right? And I just love this Jesus. You can never corner Jesus. But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, pay your taxes. And to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Shortly after that, they stopped trying to trick him. You just can't trick the one who made the whole universe. I just love him. But he said, in front of everybody, publicly, he taught, he taught, you have to pay your taxes. Now, now they have him before Pilate, and they're screaming at him, and they say, he's teaching us not to pay our taxes. This is an outright, absolute lie. What would you do if you were Jesus? What would you do? Someone has come at work, in your family, wherever, it's an outright lie. They are blatantly making it up, and they are trying to get you in trouble. How do you respond? Do you get shrill? Do you get mad? Do you raise your voice? Do you get desperate? Do you get scared? Start freaking out, trying to defend yourself, trying to change what everybody thinks. It's what, it's what comes naturally. What did Jesus do? It's not what he did. He didn't get defensive. He didn't fight back. He didn't even complain. Look at this. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And some of you are sitting there going, no! Because I already tied you in to Jesus in 1 Peter, where I said we're supposed to do as he did. Come on! Absolutely not. He gave no answer. It's not reasonable. It's not realistic. It's silly. And Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. He doesn't bark like a dog. He doesn't roar like a lion. He's just quiet like a lamb. I know right away the objection is, are you saying, Chris, that it is never okay if someone makes up a lie about me, it's never okay to answer the lie. It's never okay to make a defense on my own behalf. I'm actually not saying that. Okay? The point here is that you can never speak up in order to defend yourself. The point is, with what spirit are you defending yourself? See, why, why did Jesus not feel the need to defend himself? Again, I'm going to come back to this in just a moment. I'm not saying that there's never a case where, where you should, you know, stand up for yourself and, and tell the truth. I think there's many cases when someone accuses us or lies about us that we can stand up and tell the truth about ourselves and make a defense for ourselves. But the question is, with what spirit are we doing it? Why did Jesus not feel the need to make a defense on his behalf? I'll show you. We've read it already a couple of times. First Peter chapter 2. When he was reviled, Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued 
entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The reason Jesus didn't need to fight back is because he was busy entrusting himself to the Father to defend him. That's why. The reason he didn't get all shrill and have to defend himself is because he fully entrusted himself to God, that God is sovereign over the situation, and I don't need to fight back because God will fight back on my behalf. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This is a whole nother level that Jesus is calling us to. Yes, there may be many situations where it's absolutely appropriate for you to stand up on your behalf and say the truth if someone's lying about you. But as long as it comes out of this spirit, you don't have to scream, you don't have to yell, you don't have to get all defensive, you don't do it out of fear, you don't do it out of bitterness or anger, you have a full sense that God is defending me. And when you trust God like that, you don't need to defend yourself. Yeah, you may tell the truth, but you do it out of a spirit of, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just being a mouthpiece for what the truth really is, but I'm doing it in kindness, and I actually love these people, and I actually want what's best for these people who are hurting me and lying about me, because I love you, and I know that you're doing it of your own hurt, and I know more than all of that that God is sovereign over this, and I don't need to take care of myself because he will take care of me. He'll take care of me. Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Why? Why is it that we never have to avenge ourselves? Why is it that we never have to avenge ourselves? Is it because God doesn't care and it's okay if bad things happen to us? No, no. There's actually a really good reason why we never have to avenge ourselves, and it's because of this. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. See, here's the thing that we need to get to the core of our beings. We sang earlier today about all is well because God is in control. The reason you don't need to defend yourself is because God says when you're one of my kids, it's my job to defend you. The reason you don't need to avenge yourself is not because it doesn't matter what they're doing to you. It's that it's God's job to get the vengeance. By the way, he does a much better job of it than you do. But here's the thing. If you take vengeance and defending yourself into your hands, if you take God's responsibility into your own hands and say, it's my job to defend myself, it's my job to get vengeance that there's justice, then God has to step back and go, okay, I guess it's your job and it's up to you to pull it off. And in your fear and in your anxiety and in your bitterness and in your self-pity, you know what you're going to do to that situation? You're going to make it worse. You're just going to put fuel on the fire and you're going to make the whole thing a whole lot worse and justice won't actually get done. But if you will step back and forgive the person who's hurting you and say, it's not my job. My job is to love and forgive. God's job is to bring justice. If you do that, then he promises that he actually will bring justice. So the reason you don't need, so yeah, you may, there, it may be perfectly appropriate for you to send up and say, actually the truth is you're lying about me. But you don't need to do it out of bitterness. You don't need to do it out of fear. You don't need to do it out of self-pity or any of those things. You just do it because you want to just tell the truth and you want to do it in kindness. But then after that, you don't have to worry because the whole thing is in God's hands and he will take care of you. That's his job. 
You say, isn't that going a bit far? Isn't that a bit extreme? Isn't that a bit unrealistic? Like, that's not really reality, Chris. Like, get out there Monday through Saturday. That's not reality. Well, you're right. It's not our world's reality. But it's what we are explicitly commanded to do as Christians. The very next verse is this. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Like, that's not an allegory. That's just actually what we're supposed to do. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> Do not be overcome by evil. This, is, uh, this verse 21 applies to every situation you could possibly have here on planet Earth. There isn't a situation where this doesn't apply. There isn't a but. There isn't a certain circumstances require you to to respond with evil, with defensiveness, with anger, with vengefulness. No, no. Every situation, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good because you know God is sovereign and he will take care of you. And this is the Jesus we worship. This is the path he walked and because he walked that path, we are now called to walk the same path. And so here's what we're going to do. Before the choir comes up and we sing one last song, I want us just to bow our heads and close our eyes. And I want you to think in your mind of a situation, maybe there's a situation going on in your life right now where you are being betrayed, where you are being attacked, where you are being deserted or insulted or accused wrongly. Or maybe it's a situation that just happened and you still feel bitterness about that or you don't have charity of spirit towards those people. But I just want you to bring to mind before God, He is so loving. He knows. He knows the stuff you're going through and He knows how mad you are about it. And He says, child, come to me anyway. Come to me. But I want you to just allow God to bring to mind right now a person, a situation, accusation, betrayal, attack, someone you're afraid of. And I want us now, quietly in our hearts, I want you to see that person, I want you to see that situation, and I want you right now, in your heart, recognizing that God is sovereign. The situation is not out of his control. He has promised to take care of you. He has promised to defend you. He has promised to bring justice, as long as you don't do it for yourself. I want you to bring that person now in your mind and I want you to bring that person to Jesus. I want you to turn that person, that situation over to him and say, Jesus, I'm tired of holding this. I'm tired of defending myself. I'm tired of being afraid. I'm tired of being bitter. If Jesus could forgive those awful people who put him on a cross, he can help you forgive this person in your life. He can help you love and not be afraid. He can bring you peace. He's the God of the universe. Bring that situation to him. Bring that person to him right now. Just release it into his care. Release it into his hands. Let him take care of it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us charity of spirit towards those who have hurt us, towards those who are hurting us, who are lying about us, accusing us, betraying us, deserting us. 
Holy Spirit, give us the power to love these people. Give us the power not to be afraid of these people. Give us the power to be filled with your peace, with your love and your forgiveness. To be strong, but kind. To be strong in peace and love. We want to be different. It's no longer enough for us to just be the same as everyone else. We want to really forgive from the bottom of our hearts. We want to really love from the bottom of our hearts. Help us to become like you in this regard. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.